there is really no safe place that even if you do try to migrate away from these more open platforms where everything is sort of aired out in public, it doesn't protect anyone from tribalism and reducing uh, complex issues and important issues down to memes and bite-sized little arguments that just further exasperate people, troll people, denigrate people. You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And if you follow us on Facebook or follow our blog, there are probably a lot of people whose names you recognize, but whose voices you've never heard. Most recently, we added Jeff Porter to our roster of writers. Jeff's an academic and a teacher and a campus minister here in D.C. And close to two months ago, He and I had a long-distance conversation to talk about his article, Secular Supremacy. Jeff wrote the article, and we recorded this conversation toward the end of June. And one of the big things I was thinking about a lot in June and July was my relationship to social media. So that ends up being a big part of what we talk about before we even get around to his article. Without any further delay, let's jump into my conversation with Jeff. Then I'll come back around to lead us in prayer. You said it was a hard week to be on Facebook. What were you talking about? Yeah, well, I think a big part of that is just the temptation to try to change people's minds constantly. I'm very aware of how difficult (laughs) such a, a thing is and that it's not really my job all the time. But still, I fall into that trap if I'm if I'm not careful. And next thing I know, I'm arguing about something with someone that I never really intended, you know, and then I have to sort of take a step back and realize that, yeah, this is kind of going nowhere. And it's not even really something that I wanted to set out to do in the first place, if that makes sense. One of the things I have been trying to figure out is what the difference is between setting limits that will protect my own mental and emotional health and make sure that I'm not getting so involved in conversations online that I'm neglecting the rest of the work I'm supposed to be doing, but also not letting go of opportunities to speak or ask questions or learn or help other people learn that Mm. are coming up. Where do I draw that line and how do I draw those limits especially for someone who works with college students, where I imagine if you really wanted to, you could justify any social media rabbit hole as being part of work and part of keeping up with what the kids (laughs) are talking about. How are you doing just keeping yourself out of the digital vortex? Yeah, well, I do think that, first of all, it's mental health. But even besides that, how do I remain an attentive husband and an attentive dad and not get lost in the constant churning of outrage and excitement and jumping to whether it's a a cause or the scandal of the day. I think it's important to just walk away sometimes. Another danger that I, I think about with social media often that I don't think it's talked about too often is it'll change how people, and I've I can experience it in my own life, how they think and how they communicate in other parts of life. So for instance, on Twitter, I deleted my Twitter a couple of years ago, just because I found that I was arguing and it wasn't going anywhere. So later on, I started a different Twitter account. Then I don't 
I just try not to ever comment and I don't really, I don't have any followers and I just follow probably similar to the same people that you follow. It's like mostly like religion, Twitter and politics, Twitter. But even if I'm spending too much time on Twitter, I notice that I start to think in 140 or 280 character sort of sound bites. The way that I am parsing out an argument or putting together my thoughts are simplified because I'm thinking of punchy comeback sort of ways of communicating with people and it's not very helpful. So I do think an overexposure to anything, whether it's social media or any form of medium is going to start to have an impact on the way that you perceive just the way that you do your thinking and your communicating in general. And that's, I think it's a danger that people don't normally talk about. Yeah. I know I've said this before and I think I've even said it to you, but if I had to design the worst possible communications infrastructure for thinking and talking about important topics or thinking and talking about government and public policy. I don't know if I could design an ecosystem worse than Facebook and Twitter. And I'm constantly rubbing up against the fact that, you know, for any contemporary nonprofit, we have to be on Facebook for any organization trying to help people work through politics in the public square. We have to be on and taking in information through Twitter because that is what drives so many of the stories that end up being on people's minds. And that's where so many people's point of entry into political discourse is. And so we need to, to some degree, be there. We have mm-hmm. to be speaking there. We have to be seeing what people are seeing and hearing what people are hearing. And it's just been a long slog to figure out how do we use these platforms constructively? Mm-hmm. Uh, because everything about having a conversation on Twitter that's not in DMs is <laughs> means that you're not really talking to someone, you're performing a conversation. Yeah. Almost like the conversation we're having right now, we're like, we're talking to each other, but we know people are going to yeah. end up probably listening to this if I can figure out how to edit it. <laughs> and I'm trying real hard, but most of the time, if I'm tweeting about something, even if it's a stupid joke, it's like at least three tweets long because I just have not, I kind of don't <laughs> want to get into that habit of thinking in 280 characters. But that yeah. also means that I'm just not using the system the way it's designed to be used. If these platforms, or, you know, really Twitter and Facebook, but even Instagram, since the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement after the George Floyd killing, even Instagram now, you know, is intentionally politicized. If you, maybe you can make an argument like a year ago that like, oh, Instagram is like the one sort of spot where there's like a, a truce, you know, people like sort of like accept like, well, this isn't where I'm going to put my political beliefs. But now it's it's very intentionally flipped, you know, where people are saying keep the keep the feeds full of you know whatever message it is mm. so if these three platforms are necessary evils do we have a duty to try to sanctify them in some way yeah is there a culture war for the dignity of, of social media is there a benedict mm. option for social media should we all migrate to a different platform to me that idea of the benedict option type approach of to maintain a full robust practice of christianity we need to retreat 
into more protective communities ignores the fact that the only robust practice of Christianity is a Christianity that is engaged deeply and thoroughly with a broken world. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's the Leslie Newbegin in me that I'm a big fan of missionary theology and a missionary reading of the Christian faith. But to me, starting from the calling of Abraham, if it's not practicing making your faith incarnate in ways that create a lot of touch points with people and communities that don't share your faith, Mm -hmm. it's not actually a robust practice of the Christian faith. There's, I think there's probably room for a monastic movement as kind of a subset of specialized practice within the Christian faith, but if there's room for it, I really think it's a very crushing minority of what Christians are called to. I think it's good that things like Larch and I'm forgetting... Uh, Labrie. Labrie, thank you. It's great that places like Labrie exist for people to have Sabbath and receive and provide dedicated rest and spiritual care to people. But I definitely don't think that's what most Christians are supposed to be called to most of the time. And I think you just got me to talk myself into staying on Twitter. (laughs) That's Well, one thing that has been popping off on Twitter this last week that's been really sad for me is some of the scandal on the Geneva Commons Facebook world. I don't know if you've you've seen any of that. I've seen one headline about it, and it just seemed too exasperating and depressing to click on given the week I've been having. So fill me in. Well, I mean, I don't think it's necessary to get into the details of, of what the scandal is. But in short, it was originally supposed to be a private Facebook group for PCA elders and and deacons. And over the years, it seems like it has turned into uh, a very... I don't know how to how to say it other than bro e alt right community and certainly mm-hmm. lots of people left once it started to turn that way but for me it demonstrates that there is really no safe place that even if you do try to migrate away from these more open platforms where everything is sort of aired out in public it doesn't protect anyone from tribalism and reducing uh, complex issues and important issues down to memes and bite-sized little arguments that just further exasperate people, troll people, denigrate people, you know, whatever it is. It's just kind of like you said, these platforms are not designed to be places for really great, robust conversation. Even though you can share lectures, you can share long written pieces and stuff, inevitably in the comments, it turns into you know, the quick bite-sized little jabs here and there just to win, I don't know, argument points. One of the arguments in favor of being on the internet and on message boards back before Facebook when no one used their real name was that the anonymity gave you a degree of freedom that you didn't have when you were having face-to-face conversations or when your conversations had to be tied to your actual identity, when people could easily map what you said to who you are, when your words could follow you. And that seems to, to some degree, be the MO behind private Facebook groups a lot of times. Yeah. But it almost ignores the fact that a lot of times, if there are things we wouldn't say when our words can be tied to who we are, Mm -hmm. Or if there are things we wouldn't say if we can't be sure everyone around us agrees with us. Yeah. There may be things that aren't constructive to say in (laughs) society. Or there may be things that aren't constructive to say as a 
Christian. And part of me is thinking this, like we just had an interview a couple of weeks ago with Steve Park about public shaming and Great someone podcast. I... Thank you. And someone I follow on Twitter actually recently shared a book of um, by one of their professors called Defending Shame, Its Formative Power in Paul's Letters that I'm ordering once this conversation is over. So I've been kind of thinking a lot about almost the difference between healthy shame and unhealthy shame, like the yeah. semantic range of the English word shame, where yeah. there's no guilt in Christ and the enemy is the one who wants us to be paralyzed in shame for our sin. But there is also a healthy version of what we would call shame. Yeah. That scripture doesn't use that word, but the whole scenario of let him who is without sin cast the first stone is an example of Christ using shame <laughs> in a conversation with people. For sure. The rich young ruler who went away sad because he had many possessions is, and maybe I'm reading between the lines here, and as someone you know with a seminary degree, you can push back on me on this, but the rich young ruler walking away sad for he has many possessions is, by implication, him feeling ashamed that he's not willing to let go of these things, or even all of Luke 15 is designed to get the Pharisees to feel shame at their behavior. That's yeah. just a litany of examples Christ is giving people about why they need to feel ashamed of this before they can come to him. Well, I, I, I can think of two ideas attached to that. And the first one is that if it's not shame, that is the, the feeling that alerts someone that they need to confess their sin and repent. I don't, I don't really know what a better word for that, that awareness would be. So Shame in itself, of course, is not bad. I think if our goal in any conversation, whether it's online or not, is to shame someone, then we're being self-righteous. And Jesus is, he's fully righteous. If he shames someone, it's for his glory and their edification. That's not always true for us as sinners who like to feel good after we we own someone on the internet. But sometimes speaking truth is going to make people feel shameful. Right. And especially right now where there's been a huge about face about the reality of white supremacy and the participation of white people who were thought that they were supposedly colorblind up until a couple of weeks ago, having to wrestle with the fact that, oh, I was wrong and I need to change. That's going to be really uncomfortable. And for some people that that discomfort is an impetus for repentance and, and self-examination. And sadly for other people, that discomfort, that realization, maybe I've been doing something wrong feels like someone is shaming me and it's upsetting. And because we're imperfect people in, in a fallen world, we're not ever going to be able to do that perfectly. So, I mean, I feel like the short answer is never intentionally try to shame someone on the internet because you can't do that well without being above reproach anyway. But at the same time, we can't be so timid because we're afraid that someone might feel shame. That's also not very biblical. I've been thinking a lot recently about, I think it was my third job in politics. I was working for a member of the state legislature in New York. Between our Albany office and our district office, I was one of two white people on staff. Mm -hmm. Our district was majority black. Our representative was black. I was a minority white in our district and on our team. And I was young. I was 
22, 23. I had grown up in the Massachusetts suburbs, then was you know, four years in art school, then suddenly thrown into campaigns at a bunch of different levels of government. And I remember one day I was talking with another member of staff about, I don't even remember what the issue or policy was, but I said something that even now, 14 years later, I, sh- I just shake my head. I'm really cringe at. And to her credit, from the other room, our chief of staff did not explode at me for being an ignorant white person who has no idea about the life experience of the constituents he's talking about. She just asked very calmly and casually, jumped into the conversation from the other room and said, what data are you basing that on? Mm. And... I had to stop and I thought for a second and I told her, I guess just the authority of my own voice and rhetoric, if I had to say, <laughs> it's that data. Uh, and she said, yeah, that's that's what I thought. She had so much more patience with me then mm. than I am inclined to have with so many other people now. Yeah, um, I don't know how to be that gracious sometimes. And I mean, that was the first step in a years long journey of realizing that like my own bias, my own prejudice. And then from there realizing that if I feel this way and have these things baked in and our systems are products of the people who craft them, then unless I'm the only person with this, then these things are probably baked into the systems around us as well. And then concurrently with all of that learning history that was just left out. Like I remember the first time I heard about Tulsa, I thought it was made up. I <laughs> thought it was a conspiracy theory. Yeah, I had I had a similar <laughs> experience with the Philadelphia bombing. I was I had to like tell the person who was who was like referencing it to be like, whoa, 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 can you say that part again? Because I've never heard that, and that sounds insane. So during this moment when I've gone through these, like years ago, I went through this process of self-reflection and embarrassment before the divine at the way I had Mm -hmm. ignored the maltreatment of people made in God's image or whatever phrase you want to use if you're not inclined to say it's okay for Christians to feel shame. It took me a long time to digest this, and it took a lot of interaction with and a lot of sitting quietly and listening to Christians who, unlike me, don't pass for white Mm -hmm. before I really feel like I started to understand and get what they were talking about and actually give it credibility. So part of me feels like maybe it's not great of me to be impatient with people who are starting that journey now. Oh, for sure. But also I started that journey in 2007 where there was just less information available to us and what was was not indexed nearly as well. Like there yeah. weren't there wasn't the pass the mic podcast when my chief of staff asked me that question very gently, yeah. mercifully gently. So I waffle back and forth. I get that this takes a long time on the one hand and on the other. like The last 10 years, it's been a lot easier to start this journey than it was for most believers and most Americans who weren't Black yeah. in the 90s and earlier. Yeah. I mean, that, that impulse to like to shame people for not getting it sooner is just such a human impulse. And it, it could be, it doesn't have to be politics. It doesn't have to be even morality. I have cousins who live in Bend, Oregon which is just this really awesome little town and just on like the the eastern side of the the Cascades in Oregon so it's it's sort of got this alpiney 
feel, but it's also high desert and there's rafting and snowboarding, skiing, and everything. And it's just all, you know, a million craft breweries, all that kind of stuff. And there's just this, this disdain for Californians relocating there and, and ruining Bend. But the joke is that everybody there is from California. It's just a matter of how long ago you got there. So people move to California, move to Bend from California. And then a year later, they're complaining about all the Californians moving there and ruining Bend. And there's just so many of those, like, you know, even in indie circles, you know, like once, once you discover a band that anyone who discovers the band after you is just not nearly as cool or with it or whatever it is. So of course, when it's going to be something as important as morality and race, you're going to feel even more self-righteous for having learned the lesson before anyone else. And how could you ignorant people not know what I know on the same timeline as me? That's maybe a touch point I'm really grateful for because generally, and I don't remember if I've always been this way or if it was something I saw someone else do or say that I was like, oh, that's a better way of thinking about it. But when it comes to bands or when it comes to movies or TV shows or whatever, if there's something I like and it becomes popular, I'm usually happy because mm. that means it's going to be more sustainable and it means more people <laughs> get to enjoy it. And I like this because it's good and it's given things to my life. I want it to give things to other people's lives as well. Maybe I need to transfer that emotional skill over to the deliberate practice of giving, attributing credibility and empathy to the testimony of Christians who don't share your experience of the country. Yeah, for sure. But I think that example that you gave is such a good example because when she called you out, for lack of a better term, she had to have known that it was going to make you feel shameful but she obviously did it not in that spirit. It was in a spirit of love and edification. Like she called you out on the fact that you were using some sort of baseless rhetoric, you know? Yeah. But because it was in person, she could use inflection. She could use tone. And she probably had a established relationship with you as an authority person, but as someone that you also respected, you know, it wasn't just merely authority. And she could leverage all of those things in that moment to make you sort of realize something that you needed to realize. And shame was simply just a part of it. But when it's reduced to just a meme or just a tweet, it's impossible to, to pack any of those important nuances in. And it just becomes, I don't know, warfare. <laughs> and, well, I mean, and I'm sure she hated me. Like, <laughs> I, I went to art school. I studied creative writing. I was so unplugged from politics. I got a job on a campaign almost accidentally and then got promoted and then got another campaign. And my only skill was writing. Like I was a good writer who knew nothing about government, nothing about policy. She had to be so annoyed with our representative hiring me because he wanted a press person without actually realizing how little I knew about policy. I'm sure I was maybe her least favorite staff member she's ever had to deal with. <laughs> And that just makes the patience she had so much more astounding to me. If she didn't like me, she's 100% justified in that. But the other thing is, when I got called out on something, my faith tells me I'm going to screw up things like that. It tells yes. me I'm subject to noetic effects of the fall if 
I'm not having pointed out to me ways in which I'm falling short of the promises of God. I'm maybe not practicing my faith properly, or I'm not putting myself into situations where the reality of who Scripture says I am is being reinforced for me. And that's another thing that I'm having a hard time with is, I I hate to use this term, but I almost don't understand the fragility of not wanting to have ways in which you've done really important things wrongly pointed out to you. Because either that gets pointed out to you, and you become aware of that, or your faith is not true. Yeah. Either your faith is true, or you don't have to be called out on ways in which you fall short of the glory of God in very significant ways that should leave you cut off from him apart from the grace of Christ. If we're not having our sins revealed to us, what are we doing? How are we growing? Yeah. No, I I think that's important. And there's a a long tradition in Reformed theology and Reformed ecclesiology of always being reformed, right? When we think of the Reformation, we can we can point to Martin Luther and his anti-Semitism and say, well, here's an, an individual that followed God to an extreme and preserved an important part of, of the church that was in dire need of uh, reforming, but in spite of that was still a very broken human being. And there's parts of his life that the gospel never really was able to penetrate. And I just think that we need to extend that that same ability to accept the good and not be afraid of critique to not only our own lives, but our contemporary church as well, you know, and say, okay, what are the things that we've gotten wrong in the last 10 years, the last 20 years? What are the things that I've gotten wrong in the last 10 years, the last 20 years? And be open to it and not be afraid of terrifying words. You know, sometimes critical race theorists have important things for us to learn. That doesn't mean we have to wholesale accept everything that they're saying, but different voices can help us understand the shame that we desperately need to be aware of. Before we close out, probably one or two workdays after this episode gets released, we're going to post an article that you wrote that I literally have two different drafts of on my desk right now about secularization and white supremacy. You had made a point or drew a parallel between pastors preaching to us about ways in which we actually live out a secular worldview, even when we proclaim Christ with our mouths, and people telling us that even though we ourselves are not racist or call ourselves colorblind or don't hold animosity in our hearts toward people of another race, we may still live in line with attitudes and power structures that are racially biased. And I thought that was a really astute observation, because my whole private devotional life is built around Martin Luther's four questions of, how does this passage lead you to praise God? How does it lead you Uh to confess a sin? How does Jesus embody the praise it made you offer? How does he take the sin it made you confess upon himself? And then how would your life be any different if you actually believed anything you just reflected on? Like my whole method of Bible study presumes that I don't, in my heart of hearts, believe what I proclaim the way that I should believe it. And that has been a huge blessing to my life. And so, how did you draw that 
parallel? Where did that parallel come from for you? So I'm actually working on a dissertation on secularism. I'm a PhD student at the Catholic University of America, and I'm in the religion and culture program. So I, I particularly study just the intersection of religion and culture. And for me, in my research, I have focused on mostly secularization and what's called what academics call the, the rise of the nuns. And this mm-hmm. is the this emerging uh, cate- survey category of people who select none for their religious affiliation. So in the world of secularization theory, some of the, the, the loudest voices in the last decade, but really starting in the late 80s is when people, th- these rumblings started to occur, was thinking of secularization as a type of culture building. So rather than just a subtraction theory of secularization, and that's the idea that all that secularization is, is clearing out of religion and into this sort of neutral public sphere, more and more people are coming to argue that secularization itself is a type of culture in and of itself. And that's certainly an idea that is, I think, very common in sermons, like like you mentioned. This is something that I think those of us who go to church, especially in evangelical churches, hear quite a bit, you know, whether it's, you know, maybe a more, you know, like watch out for the secular world, or if it's even guard against the way that you are living, do you just walk out this church and immediately adopt the secular culture of, of the day? So I think that that's a message that is not only has a lot of academic support behind it, but it's also a message that a lot of us Christians, especially conservative or evangelical Christians, can identify with. I I became a Christian in high school, and for most of my Christian life, most of my devotional life, I've at least been aware, if not on guard against the influences of a secular culture. So during this recent resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, I think a much greater awareness of things like systemic racism and things like cultures of white supremacy, I just frankly couldn't help but connect the dots to how this relates to a lot of the secularization research that I do, especially in social sciences. In my article, I just try to break down sort of the three factors that social scientists kind of point to of of how a, a culture could have a particular valiance whether it's secularity or white supremacy. So what is the structure of the society? What are the the social statuses of the society? And then how do those manifest in metaphysical beliefs? So in secularity, that manifests in this sort of default mode of thinking that God's not involved in our life. So the most important decisions that we make, we might make without really consulting God or doing it without sort of a spirit of devotion. But then in white supremacy, that will manifest in ideas that, people that are not white are inferior. And you say without consulting God, and I will just point out, like, you, you're studying at Catholic University, but as you've said, you're a Presbyterian and evangelical. And for those of you who aren't in D.C., it's very, very common for evangelicals to do their PhDs at Catholic University. But one of the things our denomination gets kind of pinged on a lot is making decisions through conversation and then praying as an afterthought at the end, opening and closing with prayer, and then just having conversation as though God's not at the head of the table, like leaving him out of the conversation and watching from the outside for everything in between. A metaphor I use a lot is a family sitting around a table. How involved are the kids letting the parent be in the conversation? Or are we just like saying hi to the parent and bye at the end and then not talking to them the rest of the time? 
What was the relationship to prayer decision making like that was modeled for you growing up? Like, is that something that you were already used to coming into the PCA? So I I grew up in what I, I guess would be like a adjacently Christian home. You know, like my parents sort of became Christians when I was younger and then kind of fell away from the church. And then it was just enough for me to like learn some Bible stories and be familiar with what a church service looks like. So that in high school, when I, in sort of a, a season of need, went back to the church looking for answers, I, I was, it, things made sense and it made it easier for me to find Jesus in that mix. But most of my, my spiritual formation, my discipleship was in, yeah, more of a model of a very Americanized evangelicalism, which I th- also, you know, there's a, a, a way of trying to sanctify your own plans by throwing a prayer at the end or, or something like that. All right. That was my conversation with Jeff Porter about social media, shame, and secularization. The article we started talking about near the end where he compares secularization and white supremacy is live now on our website, christiancivics.org. Before we go, I want us to join together in prayer. A few episodes back, I talked with Pastor John Anwuchekwa about corporate prayer, group prayer. There was something he mentioned in that conversation that I've been thinking about a lot this summer. I don't remember if it made it into the episode or not, but he talked about how important it is to realize that Jesus prayed John 17 for us, for the disparate people who are knit together into his body. And this is something my colleague, Reverend Charles Drew, mentions a lot in our classes as well. That's been especially on my mind this afternoon as I finally spent about five minutes breaking a weeks-long Facebook fast. There have been a bunch of crises that came up over the last few weeks, water heaters exploding, family members being rushed to the hospital, all sorts of things like that that have been piling up for me and for my wife. So I just wasn't on social media much at all in July. And one of the first things I noticed when I signed back in today was how quickly conversations devolved into people being pitted against one another, even people in the church. So for my first podcast episode back in quite a while, on my first day back using Facebook in quite a while, I know it would do my heart good to read through that high priestly prayer in John 17 and to be reminded of what Jesus is praying for us. If you'll join me in praying along with John 17, I'd be really grateful to be reminded of this together. Jesus spoke thus, then lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that your Son may glorify you, as you gave him authority over all flesh, so that he will give life everlasting to all you have given him. And this is the life everlasting, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I made your name known to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have recognized that all you gave me was from you, because I gave them the sayings that you gave me, and they accepted them and recognized rightly that I came from you and believed that you sent me. I ask for their sake. 
I ask not for the sake of the world, but for the sake of those you gave me, because they are yours, and all that is mine is yours, and all that is yours is mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am going to you. Holy Father, keep them by your name, which you gave me, so that they may be one as we are. When I was with them, I kept them by the name which you gave me, and I protected them, and not one of them was lost except the son of perdition, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am going to you, and I say this in the world, so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I gave them your word, and the world hated them, because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them from the world, but to keep them from evil. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. Consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, so that they also may be consecrated in the truth. I ask not for the sake of these only, but also for the sake of those who believe in me because of the word of these, so that all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And I have given them the glory that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be made perfect as one, so that the world may learn that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Father, I wish that, wherever I am, those whom you gave me may be with me also, so that they may look upon my glory, which you gave me, because you loved me before the establishment of the world. Righteous Father, even the world did not recognize you, but I recognized you and these realized that you sent me, and I made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love you had for me may be in them, and I may be in them. Lord Jesus, the night you were betrayed, you drew alone and told your Father that you were going forward, not just for the people around you who believed in you, not just so that they could be one with you or one with each other, but so that everyone, everyone, everyone who believes in you can be knit together as close to one another as you are to your Father. It's very easy when we only interact with one another through these digital screens to forget that these people we're separated from physically were still supposed to be bound to spiritually. Remind us of that over and over again. Forgive us for forgetting for Jesus' sake, and by your Holy Spirit, lead us to do better for Jesus' sake. Help us to speak love and shame the devil. In the name of your Son, who prayed these things for us, so that your glory would be made complete. Amen. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us. You can visit our website, christiancivics.org to read the latest article from Jeff Porter, and to find highlights from this episode. If you're interested in how you can speak on social media differently, I'd encourage you to check out our Bible study guide, Light to the World, 
Navigating Politics in Light of the Christian Story. It will guide you through the Bible's overarching story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, and help you work out how each chapter of that story changes the way we think and speak about politics. We'll be back with our next episode in about a week. Until then, thank you for being part of our work, empowering the Church to be a healing, constructive force in the public square.